Hi, and welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing on the producer's board, it is Gordon Raphael. Today we're going to be talking about legendary uh, indie rock. Is that how you would? Yeah, indie rock. Legendary indie rock producer behind uh, such artists as Regina Spector and, of course, you would probably know him best. Is this its producer? Gordon Raphael will be on the show today. A little later, we will be talking to the man himself about his new book, which is called... The book is The World is Going to Love This, Up from the Basement with the Strokes. I have a digital review copy. Ooh, you got you got the... Uh, Ooh, she got the access. Is it watermarked? It is. Uh, so Gordon has produced a ton of really great albums. He's hung out with some of the coolest guys of the uh, turn of the millennium rock scene, uh, and we're going to be learning all about it. Uh, but Molly has read the book, and first we're going to give you a little background about his life and career. Uh, and then we're going to go over and uh, ask the man himself some questions. Yes. Um, well, first, I mean, how do you... I feel like the the signature things to ask how you feel about, in this case, would be The Strokes' first two albums. Uh, good. Good albums. <laughs> I would, they, I, for my own idiosyncratic reasons, even though I was getting into exactly that kind of indie rock, it, like exactly as they came out, I, I was never... I never really got my hands on a copy of those albums until much later. Uh-huh. Uh, so I don't really have like... like super fond or strong like childhood uh you know teen connection connection to to, to, to them yeah which is again remarkable because i am exactly the person that like those albums should have hit with yeah uh but they do have this slightly like idiosyncratic production to them yeah that makes the fairly straightforward but you know not but idiosyncratic yeah fairly straightforward rock music of the strokes have its very its own very specific taste yeah constrained tight uh very tight very clean sounding but also distorted and messy messy but clean yeah Uh, tight but wild the um uh, i'll i think i want to ask uh gordon about this in a little bit but that production i think comes from you know julian casablanca's uh taste uh in sort of creating these riddles for the production style such as uh apparently when they were first recording demos this is what he said uh imagine you're in a spaceship and you travel to the future where you discover a great band from the past that you really love which i think resulted in that particular kind of like retro retro futuristic i mean you know i was ready to make fun of that uh whatever he was gonna say but uh i think they nailed that yeah no i (laughs) i I think that i'm listen there's a reason i don't fucking produce (laughs) songs because if i heard that i'd be like i don't know what you're talking about but guess who did Gordon Raphael. Yes, exactly. And I, you know, I have a, a lot of questions about the actual production of the, these albums that I will get into with him and we will talk about later, but let's actually talk about his life and career to yeah. start. Or do you want to talk about how you felt about the oh, first you know, two Strokes I'm, albums? I'm the same as you is that I remember the Strokes um, being covered on MTV when I was like first starting to watch MTV or sneak MTV since uh, I wasn't allowed to watch MTV until I was, was 13. Was fairly racy when we were kids. Yeah. I mean, dude, Beach House, that's that's crazy. MTV Spring, spring Break. Break. Spring yes. Break, that's what oh I'm thinking. Oh, my God. The, bu- the butts and boobs in that. My goodness. Um, but So I was aware of them, but I didn't really uh, hitch, hitch my ride onto that until much later. Um, but I had a really big 
is this it phase uh, when I first moved to New York, basically mm-hmm. uh, walking around and listening to that album. But I have to say I revisited room on fire uh, in the preparation for this podcast. And that album is still great too. I feel like the party line on that is that half the people thought it sounded too similar to the first album and half the people thought it uh, sounded different in a bad way. And you know, the classic disappointing sophomore yeah. follow up, but I really like it. And I think that it is stood 1251 reptilia. Come on. Yeah. I mean, reptilia, might be my favorite strokes song yeah oh yeah because it's kind of the one that rips the hardest i i'm like what's is it called whatever happened that's the one that was on the marie antoinette <laughs> soundtrack which sorry yes i'm i was a, a like 17 year old 16 year old woman when that movie came out Good movie shot me right through the heart um anyway the gordon Raphael production for me is of course regina specter soviet kitsch which was you know had me in a chokehold when i was yes. in high school okay um but we can get into gordon's life a little bit he's had multiple he had multiple musical lives by the time that he started um producing in new york city in the late 90s he was in a seattle band they weren't a grunge band sky cries mary sky cries mary but he was in seattle kind of for the heyday of grunge Yes, and as we were, as I was looking into or researching to start this episode, uh, you know, I do feel like I have to mention in just a little end intro handshake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he uh, sound engineered for a band that we have talked about on this pod, Green River, mm-hmm. uh, which, if you remember back in the Our Band Could Be Your Life series, was kind of the predecessor to Mud Honey. Yeah, so he is as far back in the mix as the uh, early Seattle the scene, the proto grunge Seattle scene. Yeah. So yeah, he was he was in the mix there. Um, previous to that, he uh, you know found himself kind of like down and out in New York City in the late '80s, uh, kind of like strung out on heroin, like to the extent As that he, he needed to yes. like go to rehab. So he was like sober through the entire '90s. Okay, uh, and you know, kind of his previous life before Sky Cries Mary. He's art. He's always been like a fiddler. Uh, on and experimenter with like self-recording and Mm -hmm. self-producing and you know has talked about that he can you know he self-produced a couple of bands he was in when he was younger uh, Mental Mannequin and Color Twigs (laughs) Color spelled the British slash uh, Canadian I like Mental Mannequin a lot Mental Mannequin's pretty good yes um and so, like that sounds like a tossed off, tossed off insult you might give somebody in, a, in an old school way, what, what, or a British way. They're they're a proper mental mannequin, aren't a they? Mental mannequin. Uh, so, like that's kind of his. You know, clearly the seeds of him producing yeah. are in there because he can, like, you know, spend hours and hours making kind of like sound collage, experimental indie rock, atmospheric mm-hmm. shit uh, on like a tape recorder, or a, sure. you know, a, an A track or whatever. Uh, but so he's he's got the you know uh, drug problem in New York comes back to Seattle uh, is in Seattle starts a band um, with this woman and called Absinthe okay. kind of a I think like, a combination of absinthe, absinthe and, and absinthe abs- yeah it's kind of it's kind of nice with it yes uh, and then Anne is like I think this is in 1998 let's go to New York like the scene is dead in Seattle um, but we can move to New York so that's why he it's already been picked again. over by the the vultures of uh, you know the mainstream yeah. uh, record companies yeah and um, you know as and, we've already talked about meanwhile Jonathan Fire Eater is just getting going here in uh, here in Manhattan well the, the, yeah spe- speaking of Jonathan 
asterisk fire eater? Yes. Is there an asterisk in there? I think so. I think it's styled with an asterisk. Yeah, uh, you know, Gordon is moving to New York at kind of like at least what was said in Meet Me in the Bathroom as a fallow period for rock, but then you know in New York City, but obviously that there's nowhere to go but up. Yes. Uh, but he moves there. He uh, this I just think is really interesting is that he not only like commits to an apartment situation with no money, uh, but then commits to renting par- partially renting a, mu- a music studio. Okay. For even more money, and he has like no no income, and then basically like cobbles just from like recommendations and like friends of friends. It seems like he's you know one of those kind of like social connector type guys. Uh, manages to like patch together a career producing for other people, which is something that he had literally never done before. So, but basically starts renting a studio before he can pay for with production money and starts producing a job that he's never done yes. to pay for the studio. And then also Sometimes producing... you got to call your shot, you know? Yeah. Also producing on equipment that he's like never produced on before because this studio that he rents has like a nice Mac computer and Pro Tools and Logic on it, which is like the early, you know, this yes, is kind of... very, the, very early days of the digital production yeah DAW. yeah DAW. and so he you know jumps into that and uh manages to you know eke out a living while also um still trying to like make absinthe work and uh you know recording Is stuff absinthe there just him and this girl i believe so they might pull in some other people for like you know recording itself mm-hmm. but yeah and is living this generally kind of like bohemian lifestyle in downtown new york sure. yada yada you know th- through i think he I think the way he finds the strokes is he goes to a show where they're playing on the bill and he went for a different band and it was Luna Lounge and there were like 40 people there in like a hundred cap room. Uh, and he sees them and he's like, these guys seem cool. Was he like, is this it? <laughs> is this it? And like, you know, gives them his card and says, I do his specialty at this point is basically doing like demos for cheap. Okay. It's not like he, you know, I think he does some, you know, actual like in depth recording. Hey, that's a good niche. You need somebody who can, uh, $200 a day. Hey, that's, that's pretty good. The strokes go in and, uh, record what becomes the modern age demo, mm-hmm. which, you know, on the strength of that, they get, a record deal like they were, they were basically doing it so they could get like bigger gigs mm-hmm. and then you know we're doing their own hustle where they were trying to get it placed in record stores downtown and all this stuff uh he it ends up obviously blowing up way beyond that uh do you want to listen to a bit of the modern age yeah all right here we go is it now is this the demo version or is this uh, this is the rough trade version so let's see if i can find the demo version uh, I'm not sure if the, the modern was... age EP. I'm yeah. I think okay. the first version. All right.
mean, come on. I love that the drums don't even really, like, the full drum sound doesn't even really kick in until, like, a minute and a half in yeah. the sun. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. I, lo- I mean, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's funny because it, do- it does sound like a little rough compared to what the album is, but it's like. It's all- the same print, like, like all the. the and sound. also, all the roughness will be, like, very directly incorporated into what the album sound will be. I mean, they, when they ask Gordon back to record the full album, they basically say, we're kind of worried that you can't get that sound back. Can you get that same sound as we had in the demo? Because as we you know, know from listening to producers' tales, getting the same sound yes. is often, you know, the, the air in the room might be different and it yeah. might sound the same. Yeah, this, you know, yeah. obviously the the strokes skyrocket. I believe, now I'll, I'll have to ask you to confirm this, but I, it sounds like from the book, it's Gordon knew someone at RCA mm-hmm. who then, you know, took an interest in the strokes. And obviously they did the dance where they, you know, went to all the major labels and got dinner and ordered champagne and whatever. And they landed on RCA. Yeah. Um, and then he got pulled into that, but that kind of then obviously created. <laughs> Once you're Gordon Raphael, a uh, producer of Is This It, more opportunities right, right. open up. And so then, you know, kind of the rest of the book is both, you know, the fall, not fallout, uh, the ramifications. the ramifications of producing an album like that, obviously, like, yes. you know, gets him access to people like the Libertines. Uh, then, you know, I mean, it's just it's such an interesting business is that I feel like you're in this constant. It's kind of like a speculative market almost mm-hmm. when you're a producer. I'm sure when you're like a blue chip producer, all you have to do is have people pitch you and you can decide whether or not they're good. Yes. But he was kind of both getting pitched on things once he had this successful album, but also finding his own thing. So like Regina Spector came from someone being like, I found this 22 year old Russian chick who plays uh, piano and writes <laughs> these really weird songs. He's like, all right, I'll check that out uh so i don't know it's a just an interesting career yes. <laughs> i mean it's it's like seems like a career of mostly just knowing people no yeah and having and having good taste having and, good taste yes. uh you know being able to manage yes. creative personalities which he you know does in different I mean, that's formats. all that's really all creative fields is getting to know people and stuff yeah it's, you know which see is part of the reason why it's unfair but also you know it develops a certain type of person who uh, likes to know and be known yeah because mm-hmm. you know at least with the strokes you get this portrait from him of on one hand it's like these cool goofy sloppy guys who you know enjoy the rock star lifestyle but then you also have like julian will sit with him basically working on vocal comps for hours and hours yeah painstakingly piecing together like the best takes of things being like i need to re-record this so you have like this guy who has to manage both ends of it as a, a band being like really crazy but also really precise really perfectionist. now and you have to have the like patience on both l- levels of that now i've heard julian referred to as a perfectionist at all through this book did it come out at all is the rest of the band like that or is yeah, it yeah yes even for they're like Fabrizio to, they're he, willing to put in the work oh yeah there there was like a segment where he hadn't really spent much time with Fabrizio yet and then they like Fabrizio's like so I'm really excited about hoping to listen to our the drum takes uh and like 
deal with that. So they like go meet up alone, unconventional hang, and like go to <laughs> go to two boots and like get pizza. And it's like, <laughs> all right, can we go to the studio now? And yeah, this. I mean, he talks about the process of like mixing the record and how you know who uh, the who, fuck who plays the bass. Is it Free Tour, Nikolai Free Tour? Ha- Hammond. I thought Hammond was the bass. Hammond's a guitarist. Okay. I think it's Free Tour. Free Tour. Maybe I'm thinking of Jeffrey Hammond. Hammond from uh, <laughs> Jethro Tull. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That you know, one of the strings was slightly quieter than the other one, so like he needed it like kicked up every <laughs> single time. So it's a precise. It's it's turning a precise business. Yeah, it's a precise well, yeah. Business. And, and, uh, I think the miracle of this is that it comes out with a album that sounds very much like a a a, a, a great but sloppy garage band. Yes, you know, right? A tight, tight but loose. Yes, tight yeah. but loose. Yeah. Um, and then another interesting portion of this book refers to, obviously, Gordon talks about, you know, in the late 80s, he went to rehab for addiction and he was sober for like a decade and then he started smoking weed. Okay. And then he basically had, you know, what I think could be categorized as like a weed addiction to the extent that it started affecting the way he was doing business. You know, he talks about, you know, all these decisions that he makes where his his brain is kind of clouded mm-hmm. by weed uh, and he doesn't, you know, he He's not present enough to make good decisions. He's like an all day stoner guy. Yeah. Including the craziest one is like kind of while he's on the uptick of the, is this it energy? There's a guy named Paolo. Who's a Brit, a 20 year old British guy who basically comes to him and is like, I can get you a record label. And he does it. He gets, he goes to Sony and somehow gets like money and a budget and, all this stuff shunted off for Gordon to have his own record label, which is something that he says, you know, was always something that he wanted. And he called it Shoplifter Records, which okay. is such a good That's name. That's a good record label. Uh, name. But because, you know, he uh, just makes these like kind of bad business ideas, uh, bad business decisions, including letting Paolo kind of run things. <laughs> and then one day when he's like super stoned signing some paperwork that ends up giving Paolo 50% uh, control of the record label and not realizing it. And then, Paolo completely like cleans like they're going to release Regina Spector's Soviet kitsch in the UK on Choplifter Records. Mm-hmm. And then he this guy Paolo like totally bones everybody, drains the accounts, doesn't uh give her she's on tour and she's like, I don't have per diem money to like stay in hotels. What's the deal, Gordon? And so Gordon is like, Paolo, what the fuck? And Paolo's like, Yeah, sorry, I like I run this company now. And then he basically disappears. Wow. And that's at, at that point he says he basically just gets so upset that he then quits weed on the spot because wow. he realizes it's it's affected his decision making. A, a weed rock bottom. Yeah. Isn't that kind of crazy? Yes. Uh, <laughs> on the Regina Spector album. Wow. I know. I, I, that was one that I did not assume that there was much uh, drama behind. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he said that, you know, it, it, it was a long time before they even got to like have a relationship again because she was just like, dude, what the hell? Yes. Yeah, uh, that is. That would be a big what the hell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's another portion of it that I thought was interesting because you don't often hear about weed as like as yes. destabilizing as a substance, but clearly it is. Yes. Anything else from this book that I should share with you? Um, Does he like go on tour with the Strokes? He, yeah, yeah. He kind of like la- he he becomes part. I think originally he wanted to hopefully run live sound for them on oh, their okay, first yeah. tours, and they picked somebody else for that. Um, uh, but he, yeah, he travels and he ends he's, up moving to London uh, yes. because, you know, it works out that he's gone all over the place. He's he's uh, at least from what I've read. He's yeah. recorded in London. He was set up in Berlin for a bit. He's yeah. recorded a bunch of international bands. Yeah, obviously he, he does. He produces The Strokes' his second album after some 
you know, kind of shuffling around. There's a while while where they thought it's going to be Nigel Goodrich, God- Goodrich, Godrich, uh, Godrich. Yes, and uh, you know, it, it. I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting perspective that he has as like someone who is both instrumental in these like kind of foundational things, but then you're also so vulnerable to the whims of like major labels mm-hmm. who are who always. I have to say it always seems like the brass at these places pick the wrong thing. <laughs> like even in the recording of, is this it? Like they'll have label guys come and listen to stuff that's in progress and the, they will be like kind of nod and smile. And then he'll get a, an email the next day being like, this is terrible. And we think you should, we're trying to find someone else to well, produce yeah, the, this. The confidence of something like, is this it when it came out, when you think about what the rock music it was up against, and yeah. that's what it sounds like mm-hmm. when like the biggest name in rock at that time is like corn. Yeah. Why does it, why isn't this new metal or like why isn't this there's not a weedest? single drop d tuning on this album yeah, yeah yeah no it's i i do think that unfortunately i'm sure that there's uh, business guys uh who buck this trend at every level uh but if your job is to be Mr. Businessman, you're going to be like, let's go. What's, you know, in the, you see this with like Billie Eilish yeah. where now you have 20 baby Billies yes. of being like, okay, well let's, uh, we've got a young singer. Why don't we make her angsty with heavy eyeliner and an unnatural hair color and sing over like a distorted ukulele about how she <laughs> has anxiety. I'm like, I'm sure there's some other young woman somewhere who's doing something completely different and she's not being paid attention to. Did he, is there any um, sense in the book or in his writing at all of like, you know, like that the strokes got away from him at some point? Like, was he expecting to kind of be their guy throughout after the first two albums? Um, Well, so he was, he was put on the third album, which was that, um, ah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm I'm off my uh, title game. Is that first impressions of earth? I think. I'm lost after the first two strokes albums. Uh, so he's put on there and then there's another guy who's also like he's like engineering but producing and he basically gets like squeezed Gordon gets squeezed out of it mm-hmm. but in a sort of um uh he, I think he realized that it was maybe time to to move on is yeah. that you can never be one one person's guy forever you're yeah. you're going to have to try other flavors and they're going to have to I mean as we were talking about what the the uh, contradiction of the, the reception of that se- the second album too much the same or too different like eventually you just kind of have to go a different direction if you're going to stay a, a live r- g- real band yeah you know, developing band yeah um but you know the the 20th anniversary of is this it was uh, a couple years ago two years ago yeah two years ago um and he, you know, he's, he talked about, actually, I think it was Room on Fire that he heard one of the songs uh, just out in public and was like, damn, those drums sound good. And then was like, oh, wait, I, I program, <laughs> I recorded those, those drums. drums. <laughs> uh, that must feel good. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, it's an interesting story in that, like, you know, he's had these several musical lives before he even gets to that point and he says that there's probably other you know other people i'll read the real the quote i'm certain that some human beings can walk a shorter more direct route to their dreams for me though i was lit up by the sounds in my head but seemed to trip through dense forests and muddy rivers before taking the slow bus over bumps and dips in the road i like to believe that all these twists and curves were necessary for me to get my sound and to write my songs i'm excited to no to i'm excited to talk about- I'm, I'm hoping to talk ask a lot of questions about the production of this and then you can ask him about synthesizers is he a big synth guy he is there's a a photo in there that he writes about where i think again this is for um room on fire is that he gets an uh e 
MS Cynthia A. Does that mean anything to you? I would have to look it up. I'm sure I'm sure I've heard or read you know, or vintage, watched a video of that a synth before. Vintage synthesizer, and he literally like he gets it from JFK and like rides in a limousine and takes like photos of it in the limo. <laughs> it's just like I'm like, hell yeah, dude. Like that's that's just Wearing such a, a perfect tuxedo to pick up your uh yeah. your mail order like, uh, synthesizer. I just imagine as a someone who records music that you're just like, yes, this is it. This this is it. Is this it? <laughs> this no. Is it. What is it? The synthesizer. That's it. All right. Should we sign off for here? And yeah. when we uh, talk to you again, we will be on the line with Gordon Raphael. Give, give him a give him a jingle. <laughs> give him bang a jingle. Hi, bang his line as a <laughs> as my favorite podcasters say. All right. Uh, talk to you guys in just a second. All right. Here we are in the interview, and welcome to the show, producer Gordon Raphael. Thanks for having me. Well. The book is amazing. Obviously, I know it, it focuses a lot on your experience in New York and beyond once you moved there in the late 90s. Um, but I would love to hear a little bit about your experience in Sky Cries Mary, where you were in Seattle, kind of at this height of the, you know, the rise and the height of the grunge movement. But Sky Cries Mary was a little different than it was not a not a grunge band. So what, please, please tell us about that. Well, that particular season when Sky Cries Mary like started ascending in Seattle was a great time for me. It's like one of the peaks of my life because I've yeah. been in bands and bands since I was like 13 and always wanted one that like kind of was popular or got out to tour and make records. And Sky Cries Mary was probably my 25th band I was in. <laughs> First one that got signed and went touring and made records and videos and, you know, played big festivals in Seattle and stuff. So that was a great time. And it was a very creative band. You know, a lot of the groups mm -hmm. were like kind of minimal guitar rock, were kind of primitive. And we had like a DJ and a girl and a guy singer and a psychedelic light show. And for some reason, we were really embraced in Seattle. So it was like we were on top of the world and in our own little left field at the same time. Uh, how how many people were in Sky Cries Mary when you were in it? Because I I was trying to find some um some some uh, members list, and it seems that at any throughout the band's history, there have been about forty people in it. Yeah, yeah, it changed a lot. Uh, but there was always when I was there, it was always a core group of seven musicians, uh, light show tech, and a sound engineer, and like a helper. So there was like nine people like running around at any given time. That's so sweet that there is a, a light show tech that was like a guaranteed part of the the band. <laughs> that was a big deal. Like, yeah. And we, we uh, for a while, we actually had this amazing graphic artist also working in the band. And so we'd put these theatrical posters that were like print, one of a kind art prints up in shop windows. And that got us a lot of attention and momentum at the beginning because that wasn't what was going on. And it looked so good. I was very proud to be part of it because it was visually incredible band well it's interesting what you say that you you felt very embraced by the the seattle scene because i feel like kind of the looking back on it rap on grunge is that it very quickly became like soltifying and very samey but when you l listen to the you know interviews or any of the actual members of the seattle scene you find these very epicurean tastes of you know that just fans of music in general. So do you find like the, the people that were actually coming up and making the music that would then later be kind of siloed into this very particular label of grunge really had more of a, uh, a wide uh, understanding and acceptance of what was like cool music at the moment? 
Well, Seattle's like an incubator for amazing music for a long time. It was like this isolated part of the country. There wasn't a lot going on. It wasn't like the East Coast where all the cities are connected and you can go visit and like kind of make a little channel. It was this little corner of the U.S. rains a lot. So everybody was making crazy art for decades. And it was only that one window that kind of got known. And even within that, certain bands rose to the top and were exported all around the world. And that's kind of what we're known for. But there was all these other bands that almost made it and kind of made it and made it locally that you don't really hear about. Two really good ones were Image, which is like Jimmy spelled backwards, like Jimmy had. <laughs> they were incredible. Okay. And also there was a band called Lucky Me that nobody knows about with a female vocalist that was one of the top bands in, from my experience. So good and not many people know them. And I, I, I talked about this on our intro wrap up, but... um. One of the bands that we've actually covered on the show because we did a whole series on the Our Band Could Be Your Life bands. Uh, you worked on the Green River album? Yes. Yes. The one yeah. especially the one that was recently kind of re-released. They put all the material together. Jack Candino did some remixing and re like mastering of everything. And it was very funny because he called me up uh and said, Hey Gordon, you know, there's some recordings you did that are, we're gonna feature. Is that okay? And I said, I thought you did them. I thought like I got fired <laughs> for, for like for 20 years. I've been telling people that I got fired because they didn't like my style, but actually I, I didn't get fired from that one. <laughs> it turns out I, I did I, work on that record. Wow. Yeah, I, I was so happy when he uh, enlightened me. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, I have just one more quick question about the, the uh, Seattle days is that I, I saw, I saw through a one-off YouTube comment and then Molly confirmed through the book yeah. that, um, the Sky Cries, uh, Mary, um, that that band had one of the first internet streamed performances. Yeah, for sure. Like you know, right, right when kind of we were hitting our stride, uh, Microsoft was. It wasn't still like it wasn't like the the all mighty power. They built a campus. It was like oh, there's a campus yeah. for Microsoft, mm-hmm. and they were working on like Windows ninety five. And they were enlisting Sky Cries Mary help to work on the first CD-ROMs. And also this uh-huh. rumor was going around that this baby internet that was happening, the Rolling Stones were planning to be the first one to play. So these local tech companies, one of them owned by Paul Allen, um, you know, Bill Gates' partner at the time, it's called Starwave. And they called us up and said, Come over here. We're going to broadcast you a week before the Rolling Stones, and we're going to blow their minds, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And we did with our light show and everything. We did a set on the internet. 
somewhere around 95 is very early. So I wanted to ask, obviously, you have this experience of, you know, being in a band that gets signed to a label and, you know, tours and all this stuff. You know, how did that then uh, influence the way you worked with, say, for example, the Strokes when you they were also getting label attention signed to a label tour? Did that have any effect because you had experienced it once yourself? I think that, you know, I came into Sky Cries Mary already with a decade of recording knowledge. And when I had like that band gave me the opportunity to go thrift shopping in San Francisco and buy new synthesizers. And so my studio was getting bigger and bigger with more toys in it. And I was getting kind of cooler with my techniques. And so all that was very educational. And also I had this mm-hmm. confidence, like this confidence, like, see, I knew I could do it. If I stuck to my gun, I had a kind of a confidence that allowed me to go to New York and think I just, you know, got signed. I just toured. I have all this equipment. I have all this good music. It kind of gave me the energy and experience of what was going to be needed in New York right when we moved there. Well, that's a that's a great segue then, because I, I wanted to ask about when you moved to New York, uh, do you, you know, you, you moved to New York, you, you didn't have that much money or a job lined up and then you committed to living there and you committed to like a studio space. Uh, are you, do you consider yourself a risk taker, Gordon? Uh, I think I've been a risk taker for a long time, you know, yeah. like right out of high school, I was in bands, but I had no money. So I was like p- living in people's houses on their couches and using their equipment and sneaking in their refrigerator and risking getting caught taking their food. <laughs> it started like that. But like, I, yeah. I actually had a decent amount of money for what Seattle was charging, which was like oh, yeah. <laughs> $150 a month rent for a whole basement of a house. But then I got oh, to man. New York and I was like, you pay $900 to sleep on a lady's couch in her office and then <laughs> another 700 for your studio space. So suddenly like my money was going down to like the wire. Yeah. That's, I mean, obviously even New York then compared to now is probably still infinitely more, you know, livable for someone Absolutely. without an income stream. Well, well now I feel like the rap on Seattle is that it's basically an Amazon company town. So unless you're working for them, there's nothing else to do. Yes. I think that both New York and Seattle have the people that grew up there that weren't like tech aren't tech billionaires are really super in that industry. I think they're living on the outskirts of both yeah. cities now. So you got to New York in the late nineties. Um, and you know, the, the rap on the music scene in the late nineties that we've come across through doing, uh, you know, like meet me, in the, bathroom, meet me in the bathroom, uh, was the that at, other than a few specific bands that were striking out that there wasn't much going on for f- those last few years of the nineties here. What, what did, what is your appraisal of, New York music scene, late 90s, like pre 9-11, basically. Well, in in a sense, we still had a culture where it was, as you said, affordable for people from all over the world. Young, creative people were there. I knew a lot of like journalists and writers from Switzerland and German musicians. Like a, it was like a melting pot. So the East Village was still like a creative hub. And though... The venues were small, like the one where I met the Strokes eventually, Luna Lounge. It was like free music every night. And bands from all over the U.S. and all over the world would come there to play in New York City. And it wasn't a a celebrated scene. It wasn't a wealthy scene, but it was an artistically rich scene. 
So in our little neighborhood, there was still, you walked down the street and you saw interesting people and creative looking people walking around. It was still that, but that wasn't what was cool in our culture. Like the predominant culture was jungle, acid jazz, yeah. <laughs> um, what and um, yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, drum and bass, <laughs> drum and bass. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Was, you could go everywhere and find that, and everybody loved it. And that was you felt really hip when you were at a drum and bass show. You know, <laughs> that that was what was coming up, and going down was like dirty guitars or the feeling of the grunge scene or this kind of thing was going away quickly. So you still had the sense of like, oh, there's cool stuff ha- here happening here all the time, but just nothing had like popped from the New York culture into the over culture yet. Right. Well, it was seem. I mean, hip hop and pop, and the studios were trying to make a you know bet, hang their bets on those kind of things. So they were doing well. But as far as I don't know if you're talking about guitar bands or yes. you know something uh, undergroundy, a little bit like with history ties to the classic New York sound of the, uh, the downtown, that wasn't happening. It wasn't really prized anymore. It was a bit old fashioned. So you move into this, you you commit to this studio, which is, that's Chateau Relaxo. Is that right? Well said. <laughs> oh, you know French. Uh, excellent. <laughs> I've, da- I've dabbled. I've dabbled. Uh, and then, you know, you, I, I think you end up having to leave Chateau Relaxo because of maybe like some sort of l- landlord change or they sold the building yeah. or they yeah. kicked you out. Uh, so I just wanted to ask about, you know, obviously building studios and creating a studio space that feels like both comfortable for bands to be creative and to feel comfortable recording, but then also have this like, you know, the technology and the, um, you know, the instrumentation, all the stuff that you need. What is your kind of philosophy or uh, if, in creating a studio? What, go- what goes into making a good studio? Well, there's two main components. One is you have to have the right kind of equipment to do whatever kind of music you're working on. Now, if you're making underground hip hop today, we just need a laptop and FL studio. You're going to be fine. There's a lot yeah. of things you can download and do, you, know, you can live on it. But if you're going to record drums or record vocals, you know, there's a modicum of microphones and preamps and compressors that are needed. Okay. And this was at a time when computers were becoming strong enough to record audio and not fail and crash and be a nightmare. And so this was a a gateway. Not only was the internet starting off, but so was music on computers that was reliable and kind of, we can replace that tape deck with a new Mac computer and it will last 24 hours a day around the clock. And so this was, the technology part was really cool. And at the same time, for me as an artist, I've been a painter, filmmaker, like I do all kinds of art and environment is everything to me. Yeah. Whether I'm out walking in a trail in the woods in Seattle or by a lake, or if I'm at a museum or a coffee shop, like what's around you make influences, at least for me, the way I feel. And when I make music, I want to feel kind of very inspired and uh, any, I could go any which way, almost like an infinity. So yeah. Try to. I always tried to make environments that are colorful and warm and inviting and not glaring and no white lights and, you know, just no ugly stuff, no office furniture, you know, just kind of <laughs> make it uh, a, a, a heavenly lair 
for creative ideas to jump out. That was my that was our philosophy when we designed that studio. I see purple lighting where you are and I remember like some sort of purple like velour or velvet like uh, uh, element to one of your previous studios so yeah, that powerful color. The Transporter Realm which was the one we built after Chateau Relaxo where we recorded the strokes that had a like a purple velvet couch and purple velvet <laughs> drapes to hide the ugly basement walls in the East Village that we were li- living in. Yeah. But it looked so nice. And, you know, when when the Strokes first came over there to check it out, they just li- they liked the colors. They just like they oh, this is cool, man. <laughs> this isn't like a place where they make cat food commercials to make a living. And then they do bands on the weekends when the boss isn't away. This is a place yeah. where musicians hang out. Uh, so I... Going from how you build a studio, I have to transition to a question that I like to ask everybody, every producer, every music producer we have on. How do you mic a drum? It's entirely based on the discussion that you're having with the drummer and the composer. What are we looking for? Would you like it to sound like a pot and a pan being smashed by a three-year-old? If so, (laughs) we can do that. Would you like it to sound like you know, a 1980s drum machine or a Jimi Hendrix record, then there's different techniques involved. So every technique of miking or recording is first a philosophical discussion with where where are we going? Okay, so right now there's I have favorite microphone that I put in for another kick drum and my favorite microphone to put over cymbals that lets you hear the cymbals like an explosion but not hurt your ears too much not mm. take away from the vocals. Like there's a lot of considerations and there's a lot of beautiful equipment. <laughs> <laughs> we do love the beautiful equipment. <laughs> well, I want, I wanted to ask you about, you know, as we get into like, you know, the, the way you have produced uh, bands since you first started producing other people, obviously I know you said in the book that you produced yourself uh, basically your, your entire life before that. Um, but one thing that really stood out to me, obviously, Chris is a he's an audio producer, like on the podcast side. I'm a video producer. I saw you as a music producer. Um, one thing that you were kind of notable for is that you set things up so that when bands came in, you were basically all set to go and that the, you didn't have to burn off hours potentially of like kind of creative or nervous energy when they showed up and having to fiddle with things. And I just want to say I was very, that's a very impressive and uh, inf- influential, I think, way of, of doing things uh, because creative, the creative talents energy uh, is like almost the most important thing when you're trying to capture that and you, yeah. you set them up for success. Right. Set them up for success and set them up to like me. So they feel comfortable working. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. They don't have to watch you work first. Right. I always, I always, I always have say that I've been in so many studios where I, I got a group of students and they're watching me record a band and it's not my studio. And there's like a guy who runs the studio and he said, Oh, that cable worked last week. I don't know why it's not. And then he bends over under the desk and everybody could see the crack of his ass, you know, and the whole <laughs> yeah, group is kind of like vibe. trying not to look. And this is the thing I'm trying to avoid at all costs. Like totally. how about check to see if it works before the people come in so they don't have to see that embarrassing sight. So if I can put those last two questions together a little bit, okay. uh, you know, from, from the book you talked that you had like long discussions about the same thing that you answered when I said, how do you make a drum about how you, the band wanted everything to sound, how, uh, you know, 
the philosophy behind the recording and then your also philosophy is that you want everything ready to go when the band walks in so did you kind of have those philo- philosophical discussions and then like go off on your own and run experiments try to set everything up to, so when the band came in you were like i have tried to recreate what we discussed earlier and now you're ready to go some bands like in the modern era we're talking they live in another town and we're talking for three months ahead of time like how we how, who's in the band what are we doing what do you have in mind and that gives me time to plan and think about things in the case of mm. say the strokes they came into a studio that had eight microphones and eight inputs and <laughs> i didn't know what they wanted to do i don't know them from i saw them play but i still had no idea until they told me what they had in mind so i have my microphones plugged in you know i have every ready to go what do you want to do oh you want to do that you want to sound different than everybody else in New York? That's what they said. Whatever everybody's doing now is what we don't want to do. Yeah. What everybody was doing was doing the drums to a click track and adding samples and then building these giant productions. So when they said mm-hmm. that, I said, well, what people aren't doing is I have eight microphones. If you play your song and I record it in the room with you all making noise together, this will be an anti-statement to what's happening in New York right now. Yeah. And so- they put their amps up and I moved the mics, like touching the amps where they wanted and made sure they could hear themselves, like a little bit of fussing around, but not starting from scratch where I have to get mm-hmm. the cables out and take the cloth off the cables and they're, they're <laughs> bored. You know, it's all very quickly done. Well, speaking of, you know, recording with the Strokes, obviously you you first saw them when you saw them at Luna Lounge and basically did the kind of standardized, like, hey, I record demos uh come in and they did uh which it was two hundred dollars a day was that what you offered for for the strokes a three song three day you know three song three day deal on a weekend yeah 600 bucks not a bad yeah not a bad deal for (laughs) for anyone involved yeah um so you know i i want to specifically talk about the you know the the themes that julian casablancas uh, the ri- the riddles that he gave you uh, for production right. because you said he said such things as um, uh, imagine you're in a spaceship and you travel to the future where you discover a great band from the past that you really love and then also saying uh, hey you know how your favorite jeans they're not brand new but they don't have holes in them either yeah. how do you how do you go about interpreting uh, these kind of cryptic but oddly specific requests well, for production it started, it started with like fab saying we wanted to do what the everyone's not doing that was clear yeah. but when he came with when he came with the take it spaceship into the future to find a band for that was a little bit like huh who is this guy? <laughs> who's this particular guy and then i was trying to get a vocal sound and you know you didn't say like make it brighter or make it louder mm-hmm. he said like Hey, you know how your favorite jeans, you know, they're comfortable. They don't have holes in them, but they're not brand new. And I'm like, what? How, what does this relate? You know, maybe for a minute, I actually, it actually dawned on me. Hmm. Instead of destroying the vocal like I'm doing, trying to get an mm-hmm. effect like industrial music, what if I just relax it up, you know, like keep it a little bit worn, but not with blasting holes in it. And that, that was yeah. it. So I understood that. He also said stuff like, well... The whole drum set sounds like it's at the party, but the hi hat's out at the street and can't get in. Can you fix that? <laughs> yeah, like that? He said stuff like that a lot. That's uh, that's amazing. I do have to ask specifically about the vocal effect on "Is It Sit," which I always 
think is like the the if I have to say one signature sound of the Strokes, it's that kind of through the telephone vocal yeah. effect. Uh, where did where did that come from? Was that was that your idea? Was that something you worked out with Julian? Um, yeah. Um, at first, he thought he wanted to sing with the band in the room, and so I gave him a little keyboard practice amp. And after one take, he said, "Like I can't hear myself, and I don't want to blow my voice out, and this is this isn't working for me." So after we recorded an instrumental, I had him. I had a really cool piece of equipment that was kind of new at the time called Avalon. And it's a mm-hmm. tube preamp compressor EQ. And I've been using it a lot on different things. And it's very flexible. It can be extremely clean and pretty. And it could also be like nasty, like a fuzz box. Mm-hmm. And so, my, as I said, my first impulse was to destroy, like completely flabbergast that voice. And then eventually, instead of 10, the input went to four, which was still driving the tubes. And that's basically the sound. There was no real EQ added or no effects added. It's just a microphone that wasn't even an expensive mic um, being played through an Avalon and the way his voice hit it. Yeah, I mean, because it, it is the, the thing, like you read those Julian quotes and, uh, you know, I was very prepared as Molly was like, hey, do you want to hear what Julian's riddles about what the album should sound like? And I was like, oh boy, what is he going to say? And then she reads those quotes and I'm like, that's what that album sounds like, you know? The 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 voice quality is of worn but not used through jeans, you know? Obviously on on one hand you're interpreting riddles from these very creative people. On another hand, you know, especially once things are recorded and you're uh you're mixing them, uh you're spending like painstaking hours and hours with, you know, going through and like comping stuff. What is that experience like to kind of go from, you know, capturing this moment to then like having to just like tweak every last little element of it? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny in a way because I think that the general feeling is when you listen to those albums, it sounds so nonchalant and carefree and cool. You imagine yeah. they showed up for a little while, played some songs and went quickly went to the bar. But no, <laughs> these guys, all of them, every single one of them were like gathered around me with their arms folded, like asking me to do something like turn this up. No, I think I made a mistake here. Will you make this a little bright? There was I was fielding five requests at a time, sometimes six when the guru wanted something as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like even in the demo, even the three day, you know, wow. They got their three days worth, you know, up to the last hour <laughs> the of the night on Sunday. And then when we did the album, it was like seven weeks of nonstop concentration. And my brain was not used to concentrating for seven weeks. <laughs> some bands say things like, ah, it's close enough for jazz, or it's not supposed to be rocket science. But for them, it's like if there was anything that wasn't as good as it could be, it was like letting the team down if we didn't try to make it as good as it could be at every detail, hi-hat level, rhythms, tones, mixing. So it was really intense, the amount of work that it took to make that record. Did you have the sense while you during that seven weeks while you were recording that <laughs> this is it? Like this this record is like something that that's going to be bigger than than any of us could conceive. Yeah, because the thing that happened with the demos, you know, the mm-hmm. demos, which is supposed mm-hmm. to just get them from the free clubs to the clubs that paid them a hundred dollars a night, that would be great. Suddenly this is made into a record and and I go like, 
shouldn't we re- remix it and pay attention to it? No, <laughs> um, the record company likes it like that. Okay. And so they don't even tour. They're not even playing clubs above 14th street, but they're going to England <laughs> and touring and Kate Moss is in the audience and Radiohead, and they're being written about and picked as a favorite record. It's like, that never happens, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I'm enough of a rock and roll person that when something like that happens, it doesn't escape my vision. I'm like, whoa, you know? <laughs> and and everybody knew, everyone in the band knew, and I knew that if we played our cards right and we did a great job on the record, that the world was waiting for it. And that, you know, yeah. it was like, they're wondering what we were going to come up with. And if we did a good job, it was going to be something else. Yeah. Yeah. So will you will you talk a little bit about that experience? Because it seems like basically 2001 into 2002 is just like a crazy explosion, not just for them, but then you obviously, you know, you have a calling card that gives you even more opportunities to, you know, go to London and to uh, go go all, all over the world and travel and record with people that you would have never interacted with. So like, what what was that like? Well, also, it must be said that the, the strange intermission of 9-11 happening about a week or two before the Americans were going to get to hear Is This It? Yeah. You know, this whole... What, what, what were the two months that you recorded uh, Is This It? Like, it was that like, been like spring? It was, uh, it was, um, yeah, they, they had to stop on June 1st to do an entire summer of touring. They, they couldn't have one extra day. They, like, June <laughs> 1st, they were gone. All right? Wow. Something like that. And, and then the record's supposed to come out right after 9-11? Oh, man. It was it came out, obviously, in Australia, Japan, England, like before. And then America was going to be like, you know, somewhere right around that week, you know, right around that time. And it changed everything. It changed the whole world. It changed our feeling about being in New York. It just was a mm-hmm. real mind messer. Yeah. That whole time of recording the record, them touring in Europe, I was kind of hanging around Europe, visiting them occasionally. And then 9-11 and then the explosion of the record coming out. It was a really incredible whirlwind event. I was going to ask, I don't, you know, obviously I don't want to make you like real relive 9/11 based trauma, but you put it in the book that you were you were up and out, which first of all, we we cover, you know, we read a lot of books by musicians, a lot of them were in New York uh when this happened, but not everyone was awake uh, because the artistic uh, lifestyle doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, get people up at eight in the morning, but you just happened to be awake, saw the first uh, plane on TV and then heard the second plane. Well, my artistic lifestyle allowed me to bring a girl home to my apartment for the first time (laughs) the night before, and she had to go to work. So I was being gentlemanly and getting up early to walk her to the, uh, (laughs) F train station at Delancey and I oh stopped my in my local coffee shop a couple hours earlier than usual to see a little wisp of smoke coming off of one of the trade center towers and then I heard out the window this explosion sound from a mile away and that was the beginning that yeah. is that is so nuts that's that is truly crazy yes thank you for your uh anecdote we we've done a whole episode about 9-11 in music on on this show before so so it's always interesting to hear all the people that we cover whose lives were very directly intersected uh with that yeah 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 i had one thing that's in the book that's kind of exciting which was 
I went to find my singer who sleeps late and I wanted her to get up and see what was happening in New York where everybody's coming up from the South covered in dust and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I walked a few blocks away with her to St. Mark's and I ran into the two singers from Sky Cries Mary that I didn't, I didn't know they were in New York. They had just moved there before, like a couple weeks before. So like in the middle of that chaos, I'm face to face with my old singers from Seattle that just felt kind of like, like an alien encounter to, on top of everything else. Yeah. So, how's how's it been going? <laughs> How you, you like in New, New York? York? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> God. All right. What else, what else can I ask you? Uh, you okay? So you you interact with the Libertines uh, while you're in London yes. in this kind of like first explosion of stroke stuff. Uh, I was just struck by you know the anecdote that uh, Pete Doherty like got on one knee and kind of serenaded you when yeah. you first met him at the Strokes after party at Heaven London. I just happened to sit down in the back. I was really exhausted and I'd blown out my hearing really bad at that concert. And I was oh like, yeah, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And this lady goes like, are you golden, Raphael? I thought, <laughs> nobody knows me. The album's not out. The picture's not out. Like, who is this? And she goes, I'm Banny. I manage this band, the Libertines. And this is Pete. And Pete is wearing a suit and a trilby hat, a very dapper. <laughs> and he kind of pulls me by the hand into the middle of the floor and drops to a knee, rolls his hat down his sleeve and starts singing me this old fashioned song. And I'm going like, whoa, that's a good way to make a strong first impression. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Doesn't happen often. I was talking to Chris a little bit about this before is that I feel like, you know, in, in this book, at this period of the book, you're in this very interesting position where on one hand, you're trying to vouch for artists that you, you know, might have found through various ways, trying to vouch for them, you know, through to the labels that you're interacting with or to other musicians and then other people trying to sell you on people to record. And so I guess my question is just like, you know, what is it like to kind of be in this, you know, you're obviously a producer and you're a musician, but you're also in this sort of business type business deal type world. Was that, did that feel unnatural or did that feel kind of like a, a natural extension of what you were already doing in kind of your social and creative life? Well, I always thought that maybe uh, I should be, I'm, I'm such an interesting artist that I should be treated, you know, treated with respect and like in demand, maybe. I've, and this yeah. was an opportunity where it, it felt like that idea was coming around. And when I moved to London, all these major label heads of A&R were calling me like, hey, come, come to Atlantic and meet us. And we've always wanted to meet you. Like, so suddenly I'm getting in these black taxis and going through traffic jams <laughs> to meet these presidents. And it only took two meetings where as soon as I start mentioning what I'm interested in, where they glaze over and they suddenly <laughs> have, they suddenly have an unexpected three o'clock and sorry, could I sign in for their kids? <laughs> And see you later that I realized that, okay, yeah, they, they dig me for the strokes, but they're not going to get on board with my my general philosophy and the bands that I really love. So, yeah, it was it was kind of a, a mixed bag. Yeah. I mean, that's so frustrating because I just I feel like the you know, the proof, the proof is in the pudding. The instincts that you helped like bring out of the the strokes for that album, like clearly are good. (laughs) You know what? What else can I do? Uh, But I I guess record label people are not always, you know, the the most brilliant um, trend predictors or, you know, 
uh, forward forward seers in that in that situation, I guess. Maybe at that period that could be said. I mean, like, who would have thought that a band that plays guitars in like in that style of the Strokes would have been acceptable in New York at that time? Like, nobody in the lay industry would have predicted that that was something they would have thrown it out. Say, this is old fashioned. This is completely against the trends get rid of it but because of what happened in england is like oh so this is already doing something we better we better pay attention here yeah. so i i think that sometimes people in the record labels can be can have a lack of vision yeah well speaking of that uh moment you know immediately post is this it there's kind of this explosion of kind of back to guitar rock bands and you have the whole New York scene with like Interpol, yeah, yeah, yeah's, and then the UK scene all the, for, with the Libertines all the way up to, you know, like a Franz Ferdinand or like Block Party. I was just wondering, do you have any uh, favorite other records from that era that that really stuck out to you as being, you know, the exceptional of like the, the you know, half decade post-strokes boom? I would say that um, I really loved the Yeah Yeah Yeah's show that I saw in London. One of the first times they came over, they played at the ICA, this big art institute, and they really blew everybody away. And Interpol, I saw a lot of their shows that were great. And I saw Block Party early shows, very impressive. I was just felt really great about them. And the, the Libertines' first shows uh, were very incredible. I don't think they ever got to record in that fashion. I talk about it mm. in the book. I think by the time the studio was happening, there was a little bit too much partying and it was like <laughs> taking precedence over, you know, mm. keeping the guitars in tune and keeping the songs <laughs> focused, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I guess speaking of that, uh, one kind of thread that comes in your book, like, and sort of, I think, climaxes near the end of it is, you know, your experience, you know, smoking weed, basically, and kind of getting, like, lost in the sauce uh, to the extent that, you know, things that you were working on, like uh, the le- the record label, uh, Shoplifter Records, um, and, you know, that kind of, like, got away from you because you, you said you weren't, you know, feeling very, like, clear-headed in your decision-making. Yeah. I just wanted to ask, just, I feel like that's a unique point of view that I haven't really, like, seen in... Uh, in, in a book is that, uh, you know, something as innocuous as weed is actually, you know, has, it can be pretty damaging. So I, you know, again, not to just like make you excavate your, <laughs> your, 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 uh, you know, rock bottoms or whatever, but like, could you, could you talk about that a little bit? You know, in a, in a lot of the interviews I've done for my book, uh, not many people have focused on that. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Already, by the time I was in Sky Christ Married, I'd already been through my drug rehab and the worst periods was behind me. It's like, okay, I'm starting fresh. And with this fresh approach, I'm now signed and I can do these things in a very healthy way and really appreciate it. And then I had this relapse um, in New York right before um, Is This It started, basically. Mm -hmm. That got really out of control, even though it was only weed. I was already had a lifetime of abuse with chemicals. So I was using it like it was just any, I was basically all day smoking weed. And um, yeah, I was very antisocial and I had Mm. panic attacks and uh, I got, I made a lot of improper decisions that really affected me negatively because I was really wasted. Well, I mean the, the story that you shared about, you know, trying to, I think get, is this it, 
uh, in an, a good enough shape that it could then be transported over to like a bar to be played in front of some like label brass or whatever. And right. you would like smoke too much and were freaking out that I felt <laughs> I was like, that, that was a very like visceral uh, yeah. story being told of like that sort of weed based panic attack type thing where you yeah. just cannot cannot get it done a panic attack at the worst possible time worst possible i time. Hadn't had a panic attack on, on weed before it was my first one and it happened at a terrible moment right when we were supposed to be finishing and showing the record to the label and the press you know so yeah. mm-hmm. here was all these people i'd always wanted to meet my whole life across the street and yet i'm just in a, like a coma of my own making and i can't even talk to them and i can't even really like function that was a strange moment. Yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> intense. That is wild. Going off the lap, my last question, what do you what do you like today? Who do, who's whose music coming out today do you think is uh, you know, interesting or you know, maybe specifically interestingly recorded? I mean, there's obviously as you were talking like you were starting up, you know, doing, you know, the strokes is at a time that computers were becoming viable at all to record on. And now there's a whole new universe of what you can do either on a laptop or in a proper studio using a whole bunch of new things. So I, I, I don't know anything that recently that has stuck out to you as, uh, as a producer is like, wow, that, that really blows me away. Well, I recorded a very cool band that are living in New York right now. They're called cab Ellis. The album's called the East coast hold on. And it's <laughs> so cool because it's got a bit of a hip hop attitude, but it's all done with live instruments and a horn section. And it's just so out there and they're touring right now in the East coast and people are just loving them. So I'm thinking that that's a very important thing. I'll never forget. I played a two song set on a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. Well, my boy just got into bed cause he was partying, but there I saw him sitting in a suit in the audience. So don't you know how the handshake go? We go East coast, hold on the West coast, let go. Come on. I, 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 come on. And I worked with another New York artist named Junius Carr, K-A-R-R, and he just put out his first single, and I think he's really up and coming. And then I have to skip way back. There was three artists that I listened to in the last like decade that really blew my mind. And one of them is Absol. Yeah. Uh, and one of them is Lil Peep. And one is XXX Tentacion. Totally. I, yeah. I think that music really like knocked me on the head saying like, I've been playing music my whole life. I have no idea how they do this. And I'm so yeah. fascinated. I'm so fascinated. And it sounds so genuine and so emotional, just like kind of grunge music on one hand and yet total laptop and like, you know, yes. making making the best of the modern software thing and the Internet thing. So those are some of the modern things, if you can consider that modern, that I like. I, lo- I love that. I Lil Peep in particular, unfortunately, I did not get into his music until after he passed, but... it's so incredibly clearly influential now too is that like so so much stuff happening in like pop music is 
like a descendant of this kind of like emo uh hip hop uh like kind of weird broken fractured production so it, i'm glad i'm glad that you like like that cause yeah and I it's always too. interesting to hear something like that where even if you got into it late you you know in its context like oh my god this literally could not have been produced like a year before when it actually was mm-hmm. just like both technically and stylistically genre genre wise and and that is always the stuff that sounds most like the future right Right. My last question for you, um, I think this was coming toward maybe the uh, the recording of Room on Fire with uh, Julian, where you were, you know, it was at a point where the strokes had now been copied, uh, you know, the sound and the, the vibe of them had, you know, been perhaps, uh, you know, control seed and, uh, you know, disseminated and gotten more pop, you know, people who were maybe ripping them off a little bit, maybe got much more popular than they did. Mm-hmm. And there's this question of like, is it possible to make something cool that also sells and so right. i wanted to you you know i don't you, you don't need to have a, a definitive answer but like what what are your thoughts on that yeah i definitely think it's it's possible to have something cool that sells i mean i think that pearl jam and nirvana and Jimi hendrix and led zeppelin and lil peep and xxx and absol i think they sell and they make mm-hmm. incredibly unique music i think what's hard to do is like if you're making music that's like your music and you wish you could sell more and you're thinking about maybe I should change the way I operate. Maybe I, mm. what could, what do I have to do to make myself cooler, to make my own? I think that's a little bit of a sad place to be in a way. Yeah. Um, so when Julian was saying like, isn't it possible to make cool music that also sells? I'm thinking like, you guys are immensely popular. And yes, it's true. There are some of your contemporaries that wear the same jeans and tennis shoes and they are making a little bit more money, but don't let that bug you, man. You got like, <laughs> you got, you're you're so popular. You're so loved. You're headlining festivals in Europe. You know, you have a beautiful place to live in New York. You have this studio. We're, we're making our record. You have your own style. I wanted him to be more like, pleased with his, with what he created for himself rather than thinking he had to change to like, you know, be cool again, you know? Yep. Um, are you, are you making any, you know, obviously through this book, you, you make music for yourself, uh, but like in absinthee, uh, did I pronounce that correctly? Is that absinthee? Your your French is excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, are are you, are you making music, uh, yourself these days? Yeah. I make music all the time. I have like 17 albums of my own music that's already mixed and mastered. But what I don't know how to do is I don't know how to release it into the world in the modern era. You know, I'm trying to be yeah. a wizard of TikTok so that people will listen to my music. And oh, man. in that sense, you can't talk. You can't say it. if you say you're a musician, everybody will go boo. But you have to just like say it without saying it so i'm i'm working i'm working on it i'm working on it i love that i would i we we need these 17 albums yes. to to okay. sneakily come out on, on and take over the world via via tiktok and other the algorithm we got to plug it into the algorithm <laughs> yes. have, you, have you been trying to key in on production talk which i'm sure exists molly is the one who uh, tiktoks between us so yeah. uh yeah. but i i look i notice when i uh click on you know like an instagram feed of a oh that looks like a cool microphone suddenly there's a bunch of other microphones showing up so i assume yeah. that there is a, a production it's, talk it's track it's tracking your retina anything you yeah. think is interesting it takes note i think it's been really interesting to see um, Rick Rubin 
all over the yeah. internet. Like he, he, he is a very interesting way of relating to the world, you know, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of respect for him. Um, obviously he worked with the strokes and got them a Grammy and, but his whole history of what he's done and his methodology and his whole vibe and all that stuff with the chili peppers is so damn good. Yeah. I love seeing him on TikTok, you know, talking about his his attitude and his point of view. I think I mean, I I know he obviously I think he did some kind of interview that recently went viral because there was like a moment in it where he was asked if he if he played instruments. No, if he knows how, you know, if he knows the technical stuff. No, I feel like there's there's room for a whole generation of people to even understand what a producer is like because that's you know, I feel like that's not necessarily clear. Uh, if you don't you maybe watch a million documentaries or read a million books, but it, the way the information is getting disseminated, maybe the next generation can learn like what what is a producer? Well, well it seems like from what I from we what we've read about Rick and from what you've said, maybe the place that you guys intersect the most is understanding that one of the key roles of the producer is to set a good vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Encourage people to be creative and uh, make it enjoyable for them to be doing their music for goodness sake. And I'm recording an outro on my phone because I'm so lazy. Oh, no. Anyway, thank you for listening to this episode. We had a great time talking to Gordon. Gordon Raphael's book, again, is The World is Going to Love This, Up from the Basement with the Strokes. Uh, also, go ahead and listen to those acts that he has just produced. That's Junius Carr, Carr with a K, K-A-R-R, and Cab Ellis. Both very cool. Uh, also, follow him on TikTok. He's at Gordotronic. I've checked out what Gordon Raphael has been doing on TikTok, and it's very fun. You can follow us at the usual places. Uh, we are, of course, at soundcloud.com slash and-intro-pod. We're on Twitter at andintropod. Send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail.com. Most importantly, as always, tell a friend. Stay frosty out there, but also not too frosty. Just a normal amount of frosty. Homeostasis. That's right. Okay, thanks, folks. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.